For the week of February 16th, 2018, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast Week in Review. This week, we will discuss the school shooting in Florida, and we discuss Trump's newly released budget. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. I am joined this week by Heidi Groover, writer for The Stranger. Hello, Heidi. Hi, thank you for having me. Of course, and also by Sharmila Ajmura. She is the co-founder of the Indivisible Group Seattle Taking Action. She is also a graduate student at the University of Washington's Evans School of Public Policy and Governance. Hello, Sharmila. Hi, thanks for having me on. Of course. So, um, you know... There is a good amount of really just terrible news to cover, and and we will get to that uh, in depth. But first, you know, Heidi, I noticed that this week's Stranger is all about – it's aimed at people who are new to Seattle. And it actually – because I've never lived in Seattle, I wanted to ask both of you, is the Seattle freeze real, Heidi? Have you experienced it? Um, I don't know. I think it's kind of a trumped-up myth. Uh, I do think people can be – you know, maybe less friendly than other parts of the country. But I also think adults overall are just kind of unfriendly toward each other (laughs) in 2018. So um, I don't think it's just Seattle. What about you, Sharmila? Have you have you experienced a Seattle freeze? Uh, I've been lived in Seattle for about 15 years. So I came in as a newcomer and now I feel like someone who's from Seattle. And I think that it's more less of a freeze and more of like a light frost. And like once you crack through that frost, people are nice and friendly. Um, It's just a matter of taking the initiative and approaching people and following up with them. I think that's really what it comes down to is people just flake. But that's universal. That's kind of universal. And that's also a very much a a big city trait. I mean, as somebody who's lived in San Francisco, New York, Los Angeles, I mean, that's just endemic to, you know, urban populations. Uh, But I will say just as a shout out to uh, out here on the east side in Issaquah, people are friendly as hell out here. So we don't uh, we we, there's definitely no east side freeze. But uh, Anyway, all right, you guys. Uh, so moving on to the bad news, uh, as we have now all heard in a story that is sadly way too familiar. Uh, on Wednesday, a 19-year-old male allegedly killed 17 people and wounded 14 others. And I say allegedly because unlike in past school shootings, the suspect is alive and in custody. Uh, and I should note that we are recording on Thursday and there's a chance that he may confess between now and airtime. Uh, I should also mention that the day before here in Washington, Police arrested a teenager who was allegedly planning a school shooting here. You know, it's hard to know just how to process this latest shooting. I I think everybody is sort of struggling with this. And part of the reason it is so upsetting is because it has gotten so familiar. I, I was shocked to find out that this is the 18th school shooting this year. We're like 35 days into the year and there have already been 18. And that's not counting other mass shootings. Um, Sharmila, we'll start with you. When you hear the news of yet another school shooting, how do you process it mentally, emotionally? Oh, man, it starts with just that sinking sadness in the pit of your stomach. Um, I was I went to Las Vegas a week after the shooting there last November. And we were we were at the MGM Grand. It was for an event for my work. And so, you know, it, it hit so close to home. It could have been any of my coworkers mm. at that concert. It could have been a week later and it could have been us. We had an event planned for that same location. And that really hit me hard. And so hearing about additional shootings like this, it hits me in a more visceral way way because I had a personal connection to a previous shooting. Um, 
not in the horrible ways that I'm sure folks have with this one in Florida, if it's your friend or your coworkers or your family member who are directly impacted by something like that, it's so much worse. But it's just so frustrating that this keeps happening yeah. and nothing changes. Well, Heidi, let's let's bring you in. I mean, how, how do you process something like this when it just seems so familiar? Yeah, I think um, it's really unfortunately shifted from the immediate kind of gut-wrenching feeling to just the frustration and um, exhaustion coming first. You know, you just know exactly what the news cycle is going to be. Um, And, you know, not to project any details, we don't know for sure onto this um, particular alleged shooter, but some things... uh, seem to be coming up that are common, a history of violence against women being one of them, um, and the reaction of lawmakers being another, which is that they do nothing or they offer thoughts and prayers, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it's really, um, of course, it's tragic and and it is incredibly sad, but the shock really has worn off, I think, for a lot of people. Um, you know... I wanted to ask you specifically, Heidi, about the media angle on this because um, I'm taking special pains not to mention the Florida shooter's name in part because of research that we have all heard about. Uh, one of uh, a particular study was done by Texas State University that has shown that media outlets reporting a shooter's name and his backstory may lead to more mass shootings because – like copycats uh, – because other – Potential perpetrators may see coverage as glorifying the shooter. Uh, But that said, an argument could be made that the media has an absolute obligation to report a complete story. But I'm curious, from your standpoint as a journalist, how do you feel the media should cover these shootings? Yeah, I think this is one of those really tricky issues. There are several things that come up in journalism where you are weighing um, the, you know, the balance of the public's right to know something or um, just kind of our obligation to report all the facts as we learn them versus the potential effects of those and um, and what facts really are not necessary to report. And none of these issues uh, have an absolutely clear answer. And naming shooters is one of those Um you mentioned the, um, you know, the argument against naming, which is a really compelling one to me. Um, I do think we should be moving away from naming shooters, but there are also some arguments for naming them, particularly in this time of um, sort of very fast internet sleuthing. Um, you know, we've seen situations, um, the Boston Marathon bombing being one, where the internet sort of takes it upon itself to identify the alleged perpetrators and identifies the wrong person or wrong right. people. Um, that's a risk. Um, there's also the value in, you know, naming the person so that maybe other people who knew them in life and tried to raise concerns um, can come forward and we can highlight um, the sort of times when we should listen to those types of concerns or we can try to identify patterns that lead people to do this. But ultimately, in you know now decades of naming them, we haven't necessarily um, gotten a lot closer to understanding exactly what causes this kind of thing. I, I wouldn't say we don't know anything. I think we do know some uh, some signs, but it hasn't stopped this, that's for sure. And so I do think you could make an argument now that perhaps it's time for the media to move away from naming them altogether. I do think it's worth cautioning that that will not stop their names from appearing on the internet. Um, no. We're just past that point. 
Well, yeah, you, and speaking of the Internet and bringing up sort of these issues of crowdsourcing, one of the aspects that is new about this particular shooting is that some of the attack was captured on student cell phone cameras. And I, I'm wondering, um, do we think that this footage will have any sort of impact on the discourse around the issue, I guess, either positive or negative? Um, Sharmila, do you have any thoughts on that? I really hope it will. Um I was watching the news last night and I saw those cell phone videos. I watched uh, quite a few interviews with teachers at the school and students, and it was so visceral. I can only imagine being a parent and watching those videos and thinking, what if it was my kid texting me from a closet saying that there's someone trying to kill them? I, I hope that it hits home for people and that that kind of, you know, visceral reaction to to those kind of videos is more widespread and more deeply felt. We saw with the Black Lives Matter movement that those videos can be a very powerful force to mobilize people and to push them over the edge of just, you know, sort of wringing their hands and shaking their head about what we can do to really take action. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that you bring up the videos around Black Lives Matter because I think there was this hope that once those instances of police killing of unarmed people of color were caught on camera, that that would be proof that that would change things, uh, at least in terms of prosecution. And as we've seen it, it really hasn't. I guess as far as the videos we've seen from the Florida school shooting, uh, it's it's just too soon to tell right now what sort of impact they'll have. Uh, but keeping with social media for just a moment... I've seen friends on Facebook and elsewhere saying how frustrated they are from arguing with their gun advocate friends and relatives. And, you know, I'm left to wonder, is there even a point in having these discussions? I mean, we had a call for a national public discussion about gun violence uh, after the killings in Newtown, and it doesn't lead anywhere. uh, Heidi, have you encountered this sort of thing? Do you have people, uh, gun rights advocates in your family and social circle? Yeah, I do. Um, I do want to say one quick thing, and then I'll answer the question. Um, I feel kind of obligated to say, um, while we were talking about social media and the videos, that um, people may have seen some of the students in this classroom tweeting about, um, you know, being sort of live tweeting basically what was happening, the fact that they were trapped or on lockdown, and then when they finally got out. And people may have also seen the stream of reporters responding to those tweets um, and saying, can we get an interview with you or can we use your video, that kind of thing. And I think that makes people feel, uh, I, I think, bad. <laughs> I think it's a, it's kind of a gross behavior that's unfortunately yeah. a part of our job. And I think that's one area where as we continue deciding whether to name shooters or use video footage, we can also, we should also be discussing how we respond in the moment on social media, because um, it's not a time for us to be clamoring to get the interview. And, you know, unfortunately, people watch those interviews and click on those stories. And so that drives the continuing hunger among reporters to, to get those kinds of interviews. But we have to really start thinking about how we um, treat the people who are the victims of these situations and maybe just hold off and not um, not be reacting in that way. And similarly, when something happens in a very small town, we need to be thinking critically about how many reporters descend on that town, sort of demanding people's time and energy while they're grieving. And so I think that's something we should be asking all reporters to, um, you know, be self-critical about. Um, 
On the question about gun rights, you know, discussion with gun rights advocates, I my entire family is basically um, full of people who are, you know, members of the NRA or advocates of gun rights, Trump voters. Um, yeah, you're, you're from Idaho, right? Yeah, I am. And so I have not had very much luck talking with them about this issue or the many, many other issues that we are constantly saying we should, you know, go home and talk to our um, families about. Um, in some cases, I, I keep trying, you know, but I think... Unfortunately, as cynical as it might sound, um, if Newtown didn't create movement on this issue, um, I really I'm not convinced that many of these other situations are going to for some of the, you know, Trump voters or NRA members across the country. And what that means is we just have to win elections and replace the candidates that they support with candidates that we support, because I'm not holding my breath for people, um, you know, that I know from back home to change their mind about this issue. I think that's what a lot of people are, are starting to realize right now is that the current crop of Republicans who are in office right now are not going to ever be the ones to make this change. And as such, uh, the the response has been very predictable. You know, as you said, there's been like, you know, the standard thoughts and prayers and calls for mental health screening. And the mental health screening aspect was particularly galling coming from Trump, who uh, tweeted about that on Thursday morning, I apparently conveniently forgetting that just last year he revoked Obama-era gun checks for people with uh, mental illness. Um, but, you know, Republicans really have fallen into lockstep after these shootings. And it's it's kind of a big question here. It's usually attributed to the influence of the NRA. And uh, a lot of people say it's because of the money issue. But, you know, the NRA is not the top lobby group in D.C. by a long shot. Uh, in a report from the Center for Responsive Politics, uh, NRA contributions amounted to around like 1% of money contributed to GOP candidate PACs. So most analysts, including uh, uh, Lee Drutman, who has written for the think tank New America, has said that it is in large part because NRA members are single issue voters and they are extremely active. So I'm curious if either of you have any thoughts on why we don't see an analogous movement on the left. In other words, why is the right to own uh, and the Second Amendment is a little squishy on the whole rights issue. But why is gun ownership so much more of a better motivator than not wanting to not wanting people to be killed by guns? Sharmila, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I mean, the core piece of that is that folks in the NRA and gun owners, they don't see the issue like that. They they don't juxtapose gun ownership against people who are killed by guns. It's that same old adage, you know, people kill people, guns don't kill people. Right. That's that's sort of their hardline messaging. And the reason it's so much easier for the NRA to galvanize people is because you like you said, it's a single issue. They have sort of reduced this argument to like its most base form is that any kind of gun reform is bad because what it ultimately comes down to in their minds is that gun safety measures are not it's not really about saving lives, but in fact, it's a first step to ending all private gun ownership in America, which the NRA and gun owners see as a violation of their Second Amendment rights. So when you make it that black and white, it's very, very easy to just say no blanket across the board to any kind of gun reform. Whereas on the left, it's nuanced, it's detailed, it's complicated, it's not as easy as no one should have guns. That That's a non-starter. 
it's more detailed in the fact that no, there should be background checks or you know we, we shouldn't we sell should assault rifles or, or things on, like on, that. Yeah. Assault rifles, exactly. So it's it's a much more difficult thing to message versus the NRA is just no to everything, any kind of gun reform. Yeah, Heidi, do you agree with that? Yeah, I think I think that's a, the exact right diagnosis of kind of um, the fear from uh, gun rights advocates about um, that this is some sort of slippery slope. I also think the lack of research into gun violence may have an effect. I mean, on, on some days it feels unlikely that more research would ever um, change anyone's mind on this issue, but it's also one of the few areas where we have, you know, longstanding restrictions on actually being able to study what would work. Um, we also see divisions on the left in the argument because um, we see people equating mental illness with violence or, um, you know, being on the no-fly list with violence. And these things are, you know, in other in other times or other arguments, things where the left cautions against um, stereotyping or making links that don't exist. And so I think um, it can be hard for the left to totally coalesce around certain gun safety measures and also um, you're up against some people on the other side who are just very afraid of losing a right that they see as sacred, uh, though the rest of us might not see it that way. You know, in terms of the slippery slope argument, um, we actually do have limitations on our Second Amendment and our First Amendment rights. I mean, hate speech is not covered under the First Amendment. Uh, and I think even the staunchest gun advocate would agree that the Second Amendment does not entitle someone to own, say, a one bomber or a nuclear weapon. But again, as Shamila pointed out, there's nuance here, and nuance is always a, a tough sell in politics. You know, I'd, I'd actually like to bring up the racial angle to all of this. It appears that the shooter in Florida may have had ties to a white supremacist group. This is a story that's still developing. But if it is true, it would be the second time that something like this has been reported. Uh, there was another school shooter in New Mexico in December of last year who also had white supremacist ties. And as I say, things are not clear on the Florida shooter right now. But something that is clear is the difference in response when the shooter is white, which is always, you know, mental health, thoughts and prayers, versus when the shooter is a person of color. Uh, particularly when it's someone of Middle Eastern descent. Um, and it makes you wonder what the response to this would have been if the shooter in this case had been of Middle Eastern descent. Sharmila, do you, do you want to weigh in on this? I know that you're studying this right now. Yeah, my, my first thought with that comes to um, this concept of uh, structural inequality, structural racism, um, all of these factors that work to produce and maintain racial inequalities. Um, when people think about racism, it's often on a person-to-person -person level. It's someone calling someone an offensive name or treating them badly or acting violently towards them um, on this sort of really one-to-one -one level. But structural racism is much more insidious than that. It's policy. It's practice. It is individual decisions by legislators, by aides, by, uh, you know, public servants. And so we see that playing out here in the exact scenario that you, you sort of outlined, because we spend as a nation untold amounts of money pursuing, um, you know, Islamic terrorist threats, um, but very, very little money on white supremacist threats, on domestic terrorists, um, much like the the kid who, who shot up that school. And so you have to look at where the money goes. You have to look at the decisions that our Justice Department is making for where they prioritize pursuing these different terrorist threats. 
the bulk of it is toward Islamic extremism. And and that has killed maybe maybe two Americans a year, I think, is the, the average. Right. Whereas gun violence kills 15,000 people. 15,000 people died last year, about 400 of which were from mass shootings like what we saw in Florida. And so where the money goes, the decisions that our policymakers make, the decisions that our administrations make about where to put resources and funding plays out in these really structural racist ways. Absolutely agreed. And again, one of the ways to change this is through the ballot box. I will point out that our four Republican members of Congress here in the state, Dan Newhouse, Jamie Herrera-Butler, Kathy McMorris-Rogers, and Dave Reichert, have either been totally silent on the Florida shooting or have offered thoughts and prayers with no mention of any solutions. So if you are looking for a place to put your energy, uh, you can maybe work toward getting a Democrat elected in those seats. Okay. So let's shift over and talk about something a little lighter, um, Trump's budget, which <laughs> well, that's, a, that's a hell of a segue. Uh, but I guess, uh, hey, welcome to 2018. Um, uh, in any event, on Monday, Trump simultaneously released his budget and his infrastructure plan. And the two come together in a unique way here in the state, uh, as Heidi reported on in The Stranger. And I want to get to that shortly. But let's start by dissecting the budget a little bit. Um, presidential budgets are basically symbolic. They signal where where a president's priorities are. And so predictably here, we're seeing a big boost in defense spending. And of course, there is money for Trump's border wall. But the social program cuts are what caught most people's attention. Uh, There's a proposed $300 billion in cuts to Medicaid, $213 billion to SNAP, uh, plus over $500 billion in projected cuts over 10 years to Medicare. And that is something Trump swore he would not only not touch, but he would expand. So there's that. Um, In any event, Paul Ryan has signaled that he would like to try to make some cuts to social programs to pay for that $1.5 trillion tax plan. Uh, They may not wind up being as big as the ones that Trump is proposing, but I suspect that Republicans are going to try. But the narrative is that the majority of people who receive social assistance in this country and who would be affected by these cuts are white and live in red states. And so, other words, Republican Trump voters. This is an election year, I think uh, everybody has noticed. And for Democrats, it would seem like the political ads just kind of write themselves here. Um, do either of you see Republicans successfully cutting social programs in an election year? I mean, they'd have to do it without reconciliation in the Senate, which means that they would need 60 votes. Heidi, do you see anything like that happening this year? I definitely don't think it's impossible given what we've seen. Um, and, you know, as Washington Representative uh, Pramila Jayapal keeps saying, you know, she sees this as kind of um, just the latest step in their plan, right? First they cut taxes and then they look around wondering how they're going to pay for it. And oh, imagine that it's by cutting social programs. Mm. Um, But I also do think, I mean, while a lot of people who benefit from these programs may live in red states, I think it's important not to buy too far into the idea that, um, that they're all Trump voters. Um, you know, the Washington Post reported after the 2016 election that um, among the people who said they voted for Trump in the general election, 35% had a household income under 50000 a year. So his voters were not overwhelmingly um, the most vulnerable people who necessarily depend on these programs. And That's so a good point. Yeah. I think that, you know, it's, it's important for Democrats to keep trying to reach out to the people who benefit from these programs because they're not a lost cause. They're not necessarily Republicans. And um, now that, you know, 
these folks see something at stake, just like with the healthcare debate, um, we may very well see, you know, huge protests and, you know, a movement to contact your representative, all of that. Yeah, you can see this being absolutely animating, uh, particularly for grassroots groups who came out in force last year uh, around the ACA and uh, against the tax bill. Uh, Sharmila, just your thoughts real quickly on this. Do you see Republicans actually being able to cut social programs in uh, in an election year? Um, much like Heidi said, you know, I wouldn't put anything past them. However, I do think it will be exceedingly difficult to get to that 60 votes that they need. And also, let's be real, this Congress is wildly ineffective at doing anything. <laughs> so so the chance that they will be able to pass massive entitlement reform within the next couple of months amidst everything else that's going on. I mean, look at how the immigration debates have gone this week. Yeah, Basically nowhere. So entitlement reform... Um, Anything is possible in this era of Trump, but I, I really hope that, that that wouldn't that wouldn't pass. You know, another thing that's gotten a lot of coverage in all of this is the proposed changes to SNAP. Uh, that's what used to be known as food stamps. Um, the Trump budget proposes replacing the food vouchers with a box of canned and prepackaged food. Um, apart from the fact that, according to a lot of estimates, this would actually wind up costing more than the SNAP program as it is currently is. Um, can we talk about the government overreach of this? Um, <laughs> Heidi, what was your reaction when you heard about this part of the budget? Yeah, I mean, of course, like surprise when it affects poor people or vulnerable people, Republicans suddenly don't care about government overreach. Um, but I think, you know, this is just like a, the latest in a long series of efforts to sort of control and dehumanize people who receive government assistance. You know, we see this same line of argument and, you know, don't give money to people who are panhandling or something. It's all rooted in this idea that we know what you actually need and you don't deserve the freedom to choose what you want to buy because, you you know, God forbid you're receiving this um, assistance from this government program. Um, and all it does is serve to sort of continue the othering of people who receive support from these programs. And, there's very little evidence that it actually, as you said, would be any more cost effective. Yeah. I mean, and also, you know, what about people with like dietary restrictions? I mean, there are just a million reasons why this is just uh, it's it's not only a preposterous idea. It's also an extraordinarily arrogant idea. Uh, Sharmila, I figure it probably hit you in the same way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what really hits me about it is that there is this cultural um, perspective on the poor that is pervasive throughout the world. It's not unique to the United States, but it's this assumption that poor folks don't know how to make good decisions and that they deserve less because they have less. And this is just an, a manifestation of it at, at the federal level that is just appalling that as you mentioned, um, Republicans, a Republican president would put forward this idea that strips people of their individual rights, their individual choice. It's anti-market and anti-private sector. It's a state-run food distribution program versus with um, SNAP, folks use their EBD, EBT card at local grocery stores to choose their own food items. They have the power of, you know, consumer choice. All things Republicans purport to, you know, they hold sacred that they they want to promote. And this, this program, this proposed cut would just demolish that. So it's just another 
piece of evidence about their just rampant hypocrisy. Yeah, well, as, as I've said on this show a few times uh, in the past, I think public, Republicans are impervious to uh, to hypocrisy. Um, Heidi, let's talk about your story in The Stranger. Um, you wrote that Trump's infrastructure plan is actually undercut by his budget and that that would actually impact sound transit here in Washington if it were to play out. Uh, talk about that. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I guess it's, you know, it's not news that the infrastructure plan uh, is a complete sham. I mean, I think most people have been expecting that um, since the beginning. But, you know, now that he has finally introduced it alongside of his budget, um, it's really laid bare the fact that um, he doesn't actually seem to care about infrastructure, particularly public transit Um and, you know, here in Washington, the, the obvious way that manifests is that um, the infrastructure plan proposed and the budget taken together proposed um, big cuts to a grant program that benefits sound transit to build light rail. So um, it's called the New Starts program. Uh, it's this, um, you know, grant program that's existed across uh, many administrations that requires transit agencies to apply for these grants and show that they will have, you know, sufficient ridership to show exactly how the line will be designed, all of that kind of thing. Um, and the Trump administration wants to kill that program to, quote, incentivize states and localities to raise new revenue. Um, what that ignores, at least in the Puget Sound example, is that um, much, you know, the overwhelming majority of sound transit projects depend on local taxes, bonds and fares. Um, in Sound Transit 3, which was a $54 billion package to build new light rail lines, just 13% um, of that money was expected to come from federal funding. So on one hand, you know, it's serious. It's a threat. It could delay these projects and we should, um, you know, mobilize to try to make sure that Congress doesn't allow this to go through. But on the other hand, this idea that states and local governments need to show up and stop depending on the federal government is an absolute joke because, you know, that's what we're doing as the federal government refuses to invest in the transit that we need. Absolutely. And another issue that is affecting us here in the state that I will point out is that Trump's budget would also slash the Superfund money currently at work cleaning up the toxic mess down in Hanford. So we will end this week on this. Uh, Trump's budget would add $7 trillion to the debt over 10 years and $300 billion to the deficit. And that is on top of the $1.5 trillion from the tax plan. Republicans used to care about deficits. They used to be the party of fiscal responsibility. That is clearly changing now. Uh, and I'm wondering what we attribute that to. Is it just that they like spending money on stuff that they like, things like defense? Uh, is there more to it than that? Sharmila, I'll give you the last word. Yeah. Um, so there's definite hypocrisy in this, but there's also some really good messaging. Um, this is one thing that the Republicans are really good at. Um, and it actually, this is not a recent thing. This dates back decades. On the campaign trail, uh, Republicans focus their message on, you know, reckless spending by Democrats in office, the threat posed by increasing deficits and expanding the national debt, how we're stealing from our children and grandchildren, et cetera. But then when they get into office, dating back to Reagan, they slash taxes, they add to the deficit, they right. increase the national debt, and they don't bat an eye. Um, I think with the exception of George H.W. Bush, not one Republican president in the last 40 plus years has actually taken steps to balance a budget or to avoid a deficit or to decrease the national debt. 
they really just use it as a talking point on the campaign trail. And I think, you know, the deficit does matter to GOP voters and even to some Republican members of Congress. Think about Rand Paul's sort of, you know, last ditch effort to try to shame his fellow Republicans into not passing this the spending bill that would incredible or add, you know, trillions of dollars to the debt and the deficit. Right. But the lure of tax cuts seems to just override their ability to recognize that hypocrisy or they just don't care. They only care about adding to the deficit or the debt when it's Democrats doing it. Um, and if I may, one one more point on the budget that actually ties back to our previous conversation. Donald Trump today um, responded to the Florida school shooting, saying that he he wants to focus on mental health. No mention of gun reform or gun control. But in the budget that he proposed would cut millions in federal education programs meant mm -hmm. to help prevent crime in schools and assist them in recovering from tragedies. The funds would target um, or the funds targeted for reduction and elimination in their their 2019 request would have helped pay for counselors in schools, violence prevention programs, uh, funds designed to, you know, national school safety activities, et cetera. And so it's just another, it's, it's lip service saying he wants to focus on mental health when he literally just put out a budget that would hurt schools, that would, that undercuts that message of a focus on mental health by cutting funding to actually help folks suffering from a mental illness. So just last note on the budget there. You know, it's funny. I was actually going to bring up that very story in closing. Politico had a great oh, piece on it. Sorry. No, no, no it, it's fine. I mean, it, it, you brought it up and it lays the hypocrisy out pretty bare. Um, and I, I should point out that the last time that we had a balanced budget in this country was under a Democrat, Bill Clinton. So uh, I guess the lesson is elect more Democrats. All right. That will do it for this week's show. As always, for more information about the show, do head over to IndivisiblePodcast.org and subscribe while you are there to get the show delivered to your inbox. The email address is IndivisiblePodcast at gmail.com and our Twitter handle is at IndivisiblePod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. The executive producer is Aaron Albanese. Thank you so much, Heidi Groover. Thank you. And thank you so much, Shamila Ejmura. Thank you. And thanks, as always, to everybody for listening, and we'll see you guys next time. Bye. Bye.